Good evening and welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's final lecture series online edition. I'm Anthony Wong, program coordinator of the Institute. Thank you very much for joining us tonight for our book talk on Daughter of the Dragon, Anime Wong's Rendezvous with American History by Dr. Yun Tae Huang, joining us all the way from California. Uh, Dr. Yun Tae Huang is a distinguished scholar, best-selling author, past Guggenheim Fellow, and currently Professor of English at University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, Dr. Wong has translated Chinese poetry into English and the Paisan Cantos of Ezra Pound into Chinese. Uh, his ideas about the interconnections between the literature and culture of East and West are widely influential and encapsulated in two books on the Trans-Pacific, a term and the concept he devised uh, to interrogate East-West cross-cultural currents, both historical and imaginative. Uh, Chinese whispers toward a Trans-Pacific poetics uh, investigates how poetry both facilitates and complicates the production of Trans-Pacific meaning. Uh, Dr. Huang presented on Chinese Whispers in spring 2023 for a co-sponsored event we did with John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And I dropped the link into the chat uh, and you can watch that video afterwards. Uh, his other books examine East-West cultural exchanges that are embedded in the dynamics of racism and focus on cultural icons. Uh, Charlie Chang, the original Siamese twins, Chang and Ng, and tonight, uh, the icon, Anime Wong. Uh, with that, please welcome Dr. Yante Huang. Thank you, Anthony. And um, I'm really happy to be back here um, giving another talk for uh, this uh, great center. But I'm also, as you know, uh, I went to graduate school in Buffalo, SUNY Buffalo. So I'm also a product of public education uh, in New York, in New York. So I'm really happy to be back. So this is the cover of my new book. Uh, Daughter of the Dragon, uh, Anime Wang's Rendezvous with American History. Um, I assume most of you are actually quite familiar uh, with her story um, because her story is, is sort of um, wide, widely known, at least uh, uh, you know, among Asian American community. So rather than like a full-fledged you know, talk, which will probably take me about a week, uh, I thought I would just and I'll go through some slides and highlight uh, uh, her career, and especially where, for me, uh, that I find to be most fascinating and the less known, uh, if that's okay with you. So apparently, uh, I have given quite a few talks and done countless, uh, you know, interviews, especially podcast interviews um, and on NPR, BBC, uh, uh, you name it. Um, one question, of course, is always like, what made you write this book? And uh, depending who's asking, or uh, depending what kind of mood I'm in on that particular day or for that particular occasion, you know, sometimes I'll just say, um, well, because uh, she's my great aunt. <laughs> but of course, it's a joke. Um, uh, but of course, Huang and Wang um, are actually the same family name, last name. I don't know Anthony's Wang, whether it's the King or the Yellow Huang. But anyway, in Cantonese, Wang, you know, Wang could be King or Yellow Huang. Um, actually, what brought me to Anime Wang, uh, her story and uh, this book, uh, of course, has to do with uh, this trilogy that I've been working on for about 15 years, uh, starting with uh, Charlie Chan. Um, published in 2010. Um, 
Charlie Chung apparently is a controversial figure or cultural icon. And uh, I, now that I want to resurrect him, you know, from the graveyard of postmodern icons, but actually I found that story quite fascinating in, in for a number of ways, right? Um, first of all, uh, so what I did in that book, if you're not familiar with it, is that I, I tell at least uh, three stories. One is the uh, Changapana, the, the real Chinese detective uh, in Honolulu, who actually inspired the fictional character. And then, of course, um, the novels um, written by Earl Dad Biggers, this buck eye, young buckeye from Ohio, who went to Harvard and graduated from there and then ended up writing you know, a fashion in this uh, very idiosyncratic Chinese icon. Uh, and then the third story, of course, is Hollywood, uh, picking up, uh, jumping on the bandwagon of Charlie Chan and turn him into a tremendously popular cultural icon, which had really a huge impact, I think, not just on American Oriental imagination, but really on the lives of, of a lot of Asian Americans uh, growing up in the 1950s and 60s, uh, living under the shadow or in the shadow of this um, what, you know, uh, aphorism spouting uh, Chinese detective. So I, I understand, for instance, for many decades, especially since um, uh, the Asian American civil rights movement uh, in the 60s and 70s, Charlie Chung is basically kind of exiled or you know, a taboo in some ways because most of us will be fine, will be very kind of offended by even the mentioning of that name. But for me, I think uh, Charlie Chang really embodies this kind of very kind of uh, potent, virulent, uh, racial and often racist imagination, uh, which to me often is really the driving force of American culture. And so that's the book. Um, and this book was followed, as Anthony you know, said uh, in his introduction, um, by Inseparable, uh, the story about the original Siamese twins, Chang and Anne Bunker. And once again, uh, they are cultural icons. Uh, they were actually Chinese, uh, born in Siam, today known as Thailand. Uh, they can, they, their parents are actually Chinese, uh, settling in, in, in Siam. Um, they were, when they were teenagers, they were literally sold by their mother into slavery. Uh, to these uh, two American, you know, businessmen who brought them uh, to the United States. Uh, they arrived in Boston in 1829. And so they slaved for these owners uh, for about two years, um, working, making money for them. And they were basically displayed and exhibited as freaks all over the country. And um, since I'm speaking to this, you know, Asian American community, I think I want to emphasize, you know, in in the history of Asian American immigration and, uh, you know, you name it, oftentimes uh, uh, people tend to portray, of course, uh, the minority community as uh, just kind of innocent victims, uh, um, a weak, in, unable to respond to, to these violences and all that. But actually, as you know, in a minute, in the Anime One story, for instance, I can tell, you know, reiterate this point in a sense that actually, you know, um, the communities are really resilient, uh, uh, under attack. We actually will come together and become stronger. So 
The Siamese twin story sort of speaks to that in a sense, they were not just victims. They actually, when the table is turned, for instance, uh, within two or three years, when, turn, when they turned 21, they actually walked away, broke the contract, um, you know, um, stopped slaving uh, for uh, these uh, two American owners and uh, started working for themselves. And they hired the same manager who used to work uh, you know, for this slave, these two owners, and now the manager is working for them. So for now, another decade or so, they traveled all over the world, hitting every small town, you know, nook and cranny in this small town, in Amazonian, uh, not Amazonian, Jacksonian America, and they made a lot of money for themselves. And, you know, they were humiliated, uh, of course, they were, they were called freaks and uh, they were dehumanized and everything, but they knew exactly what they're doing because they're making money for themselves. And after about a decade of being on the road, they really got a sick and tired of it. And after they took care of their 401k, their retirement fund, and they retired very comfortably um, to a very small town in North Carolina. They're trying to stay away from the world, the public, as far away as possible. So they chose this very remote town uh, under the, you know, uh, Blue Ridge Mountain at the foothill. And again, the story took a very strange, you know, um, direction is that they managed to marry two white sisters and ended up having 21 children. So they got really busy, as you see. But once again, when the table is turned, they became actually slave owners. They bought and traded slaves. And uh, so... Uh, this is kind of a you know, fascinating turn that um, when table is turned, the, the victim sometimes become became the persecutor sometimes. And so that's really the story for me. Uh, they, their story embodies kind of the earlier immigration history for Asian Americans. Uh, this is 19th century, whereas Charlie Chang really represents um, the 20th century. And moving on to the topic today is Enemy Wong. And um, so her story, once again, uh, kind of concludes my trilogy called Rendezvous with America. And in all three books, um, I'm trying to tell this kind of describe this kind of epic journey by Asian Americans um, in the making of American culture and history. And, uh, you know, what, with, what they went through and in what ways they really contributed to uh, American culture, um, Charlie Chan example, uh, Siamese twins, and now Anime Wong. So, so I'm just going to run through very quickly uh, some of the highlights, as I said, uh, of her story, and then you know, and and then I'll leave some uh, time for Q and A. I'll be happy to share you know uh, my experiences after the book came out, uh, the reception. Uh, if you if you are curious about that. And we can talk about, you know, the book, her story, and the reception, and my take. Um, so, well, she was born, Anime Wang, Huang Liu Shuang is the, her Chinese name, uh, was born in Los Angeles uh, in 1905 uh, in her father's laundry. Um, her father was a Chinese laundryman. Um, for those who are familiar, once again, with uh, California uh, history, the early immigration history, 
And California was not a great place, apparently, for Chinese, right? You know, the violence uh, on the on the West Coast against Chinese were really, you know, uh, raging in the late 19th century, leading up all the way to uh, 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. And only about three decades before Anime Wang's birth in Los Angeles, the city just went through an infamous, uh, you know, Chinese massacre, right, in which 18 Chinese were tortured and beat up and uh, lynched and, and their bodies were burned. And so this is only three decades later. Um, so that's the environment, very hostile to Chinese at the time when Anime Wang was born. Um, here I would like to emphasize, uh, this is a picture of the, the you know, uh, massacred bodies. Laundry. Um, one thing interesting I found uh, in my research, and eventually, you know, I spent at least two chapters uh, describing this interconnection between laundry, Chinese laundry, and Hollywood. So the story goes like this. Um, in those early years, as you know, um, uh, directors use static cameras. They just set a camera like live stream, basically, and taking the street scenes. Uh, uh, for that reason, Chinatown, given its exotic uh, citizens walking around, supposedly exotic, right? Uh, strange costumes and the restaurants with the barbecue pork hanging on the window and the laundry. So Chinatown became a ready-made scene set for Hollywood and for filmmakers. And in those days, I guess, LA traffic was not that bad. So it's very easy to drive across town and, you know, come to Chinatown to shoot some scenes. And uh, laundry especially, if you're familiar with, let's say, the early kind of silent film era, a lot of the early silent pictures were actually about Chinese laundromats uh, for one particular reason, because of the robotic kind of movement uh, in laundromat. Uh, was perfect material for what we call live streaming today. And, uh, and, and of course, laundry is a very difficult, you know, hard labor. And, uh, people work day and night. And that also drove, I think, inspired this kind of racial imagination. Um, those who study uh, Chinese American history will know when Congress was pushing through it's Anti-Chinese Immigration Act. Uh, one California congressman actually used laundry, laundry, laundry men as an example to say these Chinese are really kind of subhuman or superhuman, uh, depending how you want to say it, that they don't need to sleep. They, they stay up all day and, you know, I mean, this serious body, you know, can, can suffer all the pain, can endure all the pain. This is what we, today called uh, techno-orientalism, right? The imagination that somehow Japanese are Superman or, or Fu Manchu, like Chinese or like Dr. Fu Manchus, who are really kind of super uh, villain, but also genius. Uh, so this is kind of laundromat provided this kind of setting for early films. And so it's kind of um, serendipitous. Uh, the first Chinese icon, film icon, was actually born in a Chinese laundromat. Uh, so that's one highlight, and this is a Chinese laundryman uh, from those years. Uh, this is a picture of the you know Wang family, um, the the parents, and the uh, anime one 
sitting on the left, and uh, you know, Lulu, the the uh, bigger sister, on the right. Um, so teenage anime Wang apparently was very much hooked on this new thing uh, called film, uh, motion picture. The same way you know, kids today were really hooked on on the smartphones, right? Uh, nowadays, being a professor is actually kind of tough because every student has a phone and they always always play with it and they may not listen to you. So anyway, so that's kind of sort of the equivalent. Any teenage you know, um, girl in those years with any sparkle imagination would dream about becoming a star on the screen. And for most of the American girls, uh, young women, they whether they come from Ohio or you know, Wisconsin, small town, they will have to buy a one-way train ticket and come all the way and then step off uh, Central Station, or later Union Station in Los Angeles, and uh, to pursue their Hollywood dream. For Anime One, however, because of what I said earlier that Chinatown providing the ready set, you know, re ready-made set, um, Anime One didn't actually have to buy a one-way train ticket or hop on the train. Hollywood actually came to her uh, because the film crew, like I said, will come to Chinatown to shoot scenes every day, and everyone will hang, you know, hang around, hang around, and stick around, trying to get a part, trying to get a part. But she was too young at the time, and eventually, luck changed for her due to thanks to um, the Spanish flu, uh, 1919 or 18, um, the kind of equivalent of uh, COVID today, like exactly a hundred years later, right? So that year, 1918. There were two like major productions of what at the time called a China flick. And these are films about China, supposedly about China. And uh, one of them was very famous film, silent film. Uh, many of you might have might be very familiar with it, called The Broken Blossom. And the other one is The Red Lantern. And for this movie, supposedly about Boxer Rebellion in Beijing or Peking, and um, they needed at least 600, you know, Chinese extras. And it was very difficult to find 600 live bodies at the time, you know, during the pa pandemic, people actually dying literally on the street. So anime one got lucky, uh, I think some ways because of the, you know, the need for 600 extras and she made it. So she ended up being one of the three lantern carriers on this screen. And this is really her debut, right? And she saved up, you know, a month, a, a week of lunch money so she could treat her friends to this movie. And so she took her friends to the movie and they, they were watching this. And her friend said, uh, which one is you? And of course, she could not, could not identify herself. And she said, well, maybe the one on the outside. So we still don't know which one of these is Lantern Carrier is Anime One. At any rate, uh, that really gave her a foothold. Um, sorry. Um, a, well, well, let's say not a foothold yet, a, a toehold uh, in the film industry. And later on, um, her real entry into Hollywood really had to do with this woman on the screen. Her name is uh, Ala Nazimova, uh, widely regarded as, as the first lady of the silent screen, and she's from uh, today's Ukraine, uh, Ukraine, and uh, she was really one of the biggest silent stars. And one thing 
about uh, Nazimova is that she was the woman who coined this term called the sewing circle, which describes uh, lesbian and bisexual uh, uh, actors. And uh, she will throw big, she owned a big mansion uh, on Sunset Boulevard, 8080 Sunset Boulevard. And uh, so her house is called the 8080 Club, 8080 Club. Um, this is where young girls will hang out with other actors. And so she sort of, uh, today we'll say like a groomer, but uh, but really uh, this is one picture that Anime Wang, you know, sitting on this um, backyard uh, swimming pool in the Allah's garden. And her, her house is also called Allah's garden. The, the swimming pool is designed like in the shape of the Black Sea because Nazimola was very nostalgic for, about her birthplace, um, uh, the Black Sea. As you see, Anime Wang was joining the party there and that really gave her an opportunity uh, of, you know, many more opportunities. And she ended up, you know, really blossoming, uh, ready to take off, you know, busting out of the cocoon of a Chinese laundryman's daughter. And her biggest break was, uh, was in 1922, um, The Call of the Sea, a silent film, and widely regarded as the first Technicolor. And... Uh, Here's the irony, of course, of her success. The reason she was cast as the lead for a big film like this, uh, which is un unthinkable, actually. In those years, as you know, uh, Yellowface, uh, Caucasian actors doing Asian characters, is really the you know, industry standard. It's unthinkable to cast a real Asian um, actor for the lead, unless you say Sesu Hayakawa, and, and, but he was man. Um, so the reason she was cast as the lead was because as the Technicolor, the new technology, they really needed real Chinese or Asian actors in order to test how good the color is in contrast, say, how it affects, you know, Asian actors or how it affects Caucasian actors and how, how, how the contrast will come out. But that film, regardless of the cynical reason she was hired, you know, cast for the lead, the film was really a big success. It grossed about quarter million, quarter million dollars. And that was, of course, uh, astonishing, you know. And this is like the Technicolor because the other um, actors were also Asian as well, Chinese. Um, that will lead to her, you know, a big role in another really big production called The Thief of Baghdad. And she plays uh, this Mongol maid. Um, the, the movie, of course, starring uh, <clears throat> Douglas Fairbank. Um, a really big star at the time. And for her to be in this movie will be the equivalent of say, you know, despite the fact you have a minor role, but this is really a Star Wars movie. That's really the equivalent. And despite her success in those years, um, she's reaching a dilemma in her career in the sense that um, at the height of Hollywood Orientalism, and this is, you know, Chinese theater, right? Uh, Grauman Chinese theater. Uh, built in 1927, and this is really the Mecca of Hollywood, right? And uh, at the heart of this Mecca stands a Chinese theater. Why? As you see, this kind of oriental imagination, uh, you know, liking something strange and foreign was always part of, you know, the trade of, uh, of film or Hollywood. Um, so let's pick 1927 as the years. Let's say in that year, there were at least four uh, China flicks, films about China or China related films. And, uh, Anime One was in every single one of them. 
But the irony is that no film can do, no China film can do without her. But no director can really have her as the lead.、Uh, after Toll the Sea, she basically couldn't get another, you know, a lead part、um, uh, because that's really the, like I said,、um, you know, the industry standard.、Uh, Yellowface、uh, was the standard. So she was really sick and tired of this、uh, teaching、um, Caucasian actresses, you know, how to eat with chopsticks or how to pretend to speak Chinese or something. So when the opportunity came、um, that she was offered a contract to go to Germany,、uh, that's when she, <clears throat> she and her sister Lulu, arrived in Berlin、uh, in 1928, and、uh, that's <clears throat> really the her story of going to Europe in order to be、um, recognized as American, and、uh, <clears throat> in Europe her career really took off. And another. Highlight of her career is that how resourceful she was as a、uh, as a coolie in Hollywood or in film、uh, industry. Is that、um, so? On the screen is a scene from、uh, <clears throat> the silent、uh, film Piccadilly, made in 1929, and she was really good in this movie. This is like the swan song of the silent era. And she played this kitchen maid, who's also turned out to be a great dancer, and therefore rose as、uh, you know the star of this、uh, elite club, Piccadilly. And she also stole the heart of the owner. After the success of this film, she was offered、um, <clears throat> a role in British theatre. So in this show, in this play called The Circle of Chalk, The Circle Chalk, which is based on a Chinese、uh, uh, folk tale. And this is we're talking about British theater, and this is really serious art. And Anime One's dream was always actually was to be on live theater because, as you know, in the early years, film was regarded as a very kind of low art, popular and low art, whereas theater is really kind of aristocratic, kind of real art, right? Um, so, um, so she starred in this um um British play. Um, pairing up with、uh, Laurence Olivier, actually young Laurence Olivier, Sir Larry later on.、Um, the minute she spoke, the critics were appalled because she spoke English with this California Valley girl accent, and then that's because earlier all the other films were silent, right? And now this is the first time she actually spoke, and she realized the problem, and、uh, the film. Uh, industry, as you know, was also transitioning. The technolo- technological transition from silent to talkie was also taking place at the time, and a lot of you know silent stars really fell by the wayside because the minute they spoke,、uh, all the charm is just dispelled, it's gone. And so Animeon realized, she, in order to survive and thrive, she needed to do something about her voice, and that's when she actually hired,、um, spent a lot of money. Hiring a tutor from Oxford, so she left America in 1928 as like a kind of sheep flapper. When she returned to America uh, in uh, in October 1930, two years later,、um, she was now wear just wearing you know、uh, expensive kind of trendy European fashion.、Um, she also was sporting this kind of upper class、uh, British accent as well. And that's how you know she adapted 
she was and how uh, resourceful uh, she was. And the big film she made, uh, this is now we are in the talkie era, is uh, Daughter of the Dragon, of course. And this is really a vintage uh, anime one film because it basically uh, cemented her image as a uh, dragon lady. And uh, today, as you know, uh, her legacy is somewhat tortured, right? Uh, people are still divided as to whether or not she perpetuated these um, uh, stereotypes between Madame Butterfly, which you know performed in Toe of the Sea, and now in Daughter of the Dragon as the Dragon Lady. And uh, so this is really, you know, a key, and she pairs with uh, Seiso Hayakawa, the Japanese-American uh, star. Uh, the other big film she made in those years was uh, with Marlena Dietrich, uh, Joseph, Joseph uh, you know, Ron Sternberg, uh, Shanghai Express. Despite the fact she was playing second fiddle to the German star Marlena Dietrich, uh, if you watch the film, as you know, she's actually, Enemy One was actually, in many ways, uh, uh, a better kind of noirish character. Uh, she had the best kind of dead pants uh, in the film. Um, so the other amazing thing uh, I want to highlight is that uh, she's not just a film icon, as you know. She was also a fashion icon. She had this kind of unique ability to turn working-class aesthetics um, uh, uh, into uh, high fashion, high-class fashion. So this coolie hat and a coolie jacket, but I'm also very particularly fond of this, you know, nail guards. And I, as a professor, I have this fantasy and wearing these nail guards when I teach. And if I point at the students, you better get your answer straight, right? Uh, sorry. So um, when, you know, the film roles run dry in some years, she will turn to fashion to keep her legacy strong, you know, her keep her, you know, uh, image uh, shining. Um, there's another picture. Okay. So... The other turn in her career, as many of you know, is uh, that she failed to get the, the lead part in The Good Earth, right? And The Good Earth, based on Prodoc's uh, award-winning uh, novel, uh, was one of the biggest productions in those years. And um, uh, some Asian-American scholars call that, you know, this could have been our Gone with the Wind. And uh, MGM spent a lot of money optioned that novel, but they also spent four years hiring an army of Chinese coolie and to carve a California hillside and then turn it into a Chinese rice paddy. So that's how big the production was. And Animal Wong really wanted the lead role as the Chinese farmer's wife. And as you know, that role eventually went to uh, Austrian actress Louise Rayner. Well, to her credit, Louise Rayner was actually pretty good. She actually won Oscar for that role. And but that broke Animal One's heart, and she—that's when she decided to go to China to do what, what I call kind of her soul-searching China trip to look for her Chinese soul. And this is a, a shot of Shanghai when she arrived. And Shanghai, of course, she was astonished to discover. And this is right before the Japanese invasion, the the, the outbreak, you know, of World War Two in in the Pacific region, right? World War Two began later for Europe, but actually broke out in China, uh, between Japan and China in 1937. So Anime Wang went there a year before them. This is pre-war Shanghai was a you know, mind-boggling place. And she thought, wow, China, Shanghai is just so crazy. 
it makes you know Santa Monica like backwater in some ways. And um, Chinese media from the get go followed uh, uh, this Chinese icon almost every step of the way, and uh, they will put her on the cover. You know the gossip column will go wild about you know her life and everything, speculations and everything. So her reception, uh, as you know, China in those years, you know, um, was not a really, uh, I mean, a liberal country. Let's just say uh, Chinese tradition is not well known for its liberalism, right? So a lot of critics were actually quite mad or or you know, uh, negative about most of the roles she played in films, especially when she played, say, um, Daughter of the Dragon, you know, Dr. Fu Manchu's daughter and everything. So they were quite um, negative about her. So her reception in China um, on that trip is also kind of divided. Uh, she was welcome as a global icon. On the other hand, some critics are really kind of mad and angry and wanted to drive her out of the country but she ended up um, spending nine months in China, visiting various cities, Shanghai, uh, Hong Kong. She also went to the Philippines. And eventually she went to rural Canton, where her father was living at the time in, in his retirement. And uh, she went to Be Peking, Beijing today. Um, and uh, she, was, she was very fond of Peking. And she thought, oh, China, uh, the culture is so deeply embedded in the ancient city. And she thought that would be her city, you know, if she were to kind of choose a, a place to to live for that matter. Uh, this is Hong Kong. And the one kind of segue is that she met up with uh, Warner Olin, my favorite Charlie Chung actor. And they were actually best friends. Uh, they they co-starred in so many films, including Dragon of the Lady, Daughter of the Dragon, and the Shanghai Express. Warner Olin played this uh, Henry Chang, who is the Chinese villain. Um, so... Part of her purpose of going to China was not just to, you know, visit her family, but it was really actually to bring Chinese theater back to the United States and to popularize it in the West. And uh, so that's her, you know, part of her purpose. Um, she returned to um, to the United States uh, in 1937. And uh, that's when, you know, the Shanghai massacre, uh, Japanese bombing of Shanghai, uh, began and they followed by uh, full-scale invasion. In those war years, uh, Animal was really the, the face of China relief. Uh, she donated her money, sold her jewelry, and especially her clothes, uh, expensive kind of, you know, fashionable Chinese uh, song, the, the, the robe she brought back from China. And she popularized that as well in the United States, as you know. Um, and um, let's see. So one thing she would do is that, uh, you know, at the plant raising event, she will offer to write, you know, your name in Chinese uh, for 10 cents, as you see, as to raise money for China relief. And she also went to Australia to, you know, to make, um, raise more funds uh, for the war. And especially she made two films, you know, Bombs Over Burma and The Lady from Chongqing. And in those years, of course, there was a real lady from Chongqing, as Madame Chiang Kai-shek, who came to the United States on a speaking tour. And here again is a competition among icons, is that Madame Chiang Kai-shek definitely did not want Anime Wang to share a stage. So in the, her last kind of speech, uh, a kind of a 
a finale uh, in Hollywood Bowl. Uh, Madame Zhang Kai has stepped on the stage and is starting, you know, to speak. Um, all Hollywood stars were there. You name it. You know, who's who? All there. The only one who was not invited was actually Anime One. So, despite the years of her, you know, um, hard work, um, donation and fundraising, and everything representing China, um, eventually, you know, it's uh, Madame Zhang Kai who really kind of snubbed her. So her later years. I'm sad to say, was pretty depressing. She went through uh, her last decade or so, really with a you know a drink in one hand, a cigarette in the other, and she really turned to the bottle, and uh, and so she suffered from that uh, alcoholism, and she would hang out in this uh, in this um, restaurant called the Dragon's Den. Once again, it's kind of serendipitous, right? That the daughter of the dragon eventually ended up you know, hanging out, uh, spending her last years in Dragon's Den. And this also happened to be a place uh, for uh, gay and lesbian, you know, gay and lesbian actors uh, and the folks to hang out as well. And she will play, you know, she actually, with, she was friends with the C uh, siblings who owned the place. And uh, so they were actually childhood friends. And they will play poker, crap get drinks and uh, cracking corny jokes and everything. And um, unfortunately, you know, she died at a very young age uh, of uh, 56. Uh, she was ready to have this big comeback uh, because um, the year, by the time uh, at her death, um, she was actually offered uh, a big role in the Flower Drum Song, this, you know, um, the Broadway musical now adapting for adapted for the screen, and she would have been able to make a big comeback uh, to show off her acting and uh, singing and the performance skills. And these are she's very talented in all of these. But like I said, unfortunately, due to years of alcoholism and a poor health, she died of a heart attack. So on her death and uh, deathbed, uh, the screenplay uh, of Flower Drum Song was actually lying next to her. So she was really what I call like uh, the star coolie in Hollywood's uh, dream factory. And that is really her story um, that I try to tell. And this is her, you know, the star. And last year, as you know, there's this anime one quarter. Unfortunately, we are, you know, we are on Zoom. If I was speaking in person, then I'll be happy to give you, you know, one of these uncirculated uh, uh, US Mint, uh, you know, Mint um, produced uh, Anime One Quarter. They are in circulation, but what I have collected actually the uncirculated uh, new ones. Um, so I think I'll end here. Uh, I'll definitely invite you to, you know, send me questions or, you know, type in your questions or just raise your hand. I'll be happy to share with you uh, anything else uh, you would like to know. Okay. Thank you. Very interesting uh, presentation. Uh, the part about uh, her uh, seeking a role in Flower Drum Song, I, I didn't even know about. Do, do you know which role she was up for? Yes, uh, uh, Ang Liang. The role eventually went to this uh, Juanita Hall, who was an African-American uh, actor. Okay. The, the aunt, the old aunt, the mother role. <laughs> so she would have a big part of singing, uh, you know, uh, she might be. <laughs> uh, Leslie Lee has a question for you, Professor Huang. 
Are you familiar with contemporary novels, plays, or films created by Chinese Americans? And if so, uh, what is your impression? Uh, do you think these writers, playwrights, and filmmakers are creating new icons? And how do they compare to the old Hollywood icons of Charlie Chan and Anna Mae Wong? Thank you. Okay. Well, great. Sure. So once again, you know, we are talking about People ask me why the big comeback for Anime Wong, right? It seems like she's having a big comeback, you know, her quarter is being circulated and, and everything. Um, and it's a really big moment. Uh, Inner Chinatown by Charles Yu just won a major book award. Michelle Yeoh just won Oscar. You know, that moment I felt like I was watching it. And that moment I felt like Anime Wong coming back, you know, just to claim the titles she long, you know, long, long overdue. And we're also talking about um, uh, Netflix, you know, the Korean cinema is very popular. So you name it, Sanja Oh, The Chair and everything. So it seems like uh, um, Asian American art and literature, <clears throat> you know, novels, uh, movie and uh, TV series and everything, as if uh, we are going great. But of course, I mean, it's not so long ago during the pandemic, right? Uh, Asians are regularly attacked in Chinatown, right? Because of Chinese are blamed. So what I'm trying to say, kind of my convoluted way of answering this question is that, yes, of course, I mean, you know, I, I'm familiar with most of this and um, crazy, you know, crazy rich Asian, for instance, very popular and all that, um, as if we are catching on in some sense. But the reason I want to, go, you know, I, I wrote this trilogy is to not necessarily say, oh, it's so long ago, you know, this is the past, but as you see, um, if you are familiar with the film, let's just say, um, how what is the image for what what is the Chinese like on the screen, like how they act and everything? You know, Anime Wang was living and working at a time when Chinese were will be considered too Chinese, like to play a role. And the reason why she didn't get the you know a good earth part was because MGM thought, oh, Chinese don't act this way, you know, they don't look like this. And that's not so long ago. So what I'm trying to say is, uh, each art, whether it's novel, film, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> you name it, or just painting, let's just say, has its tradition, has its routine, has its convention. Sometimes it's not so easy to break out of that convention. So if you are in that industry, like anyone got blamed for perpetuating some of these stereotypes, but you have to imagine in that very limited space, no Chinese were able to step into that limited space even. And how is she going to subvert those conventions or break out of it? When the director say, oh, Chinese don't say this or don't act like this, what will be her, her pushback, right? So today it seems like we don't need to do that anymore, but I'll argue differently, actually. Like I said, uh, writing, literature, publishing, uh, film, and they all have, you know, preconceptions, stereotypes that are deeply embedded in these artistic traditions uh, or cultural kind of standards. Uh, some of them are still very subtle and some of them are kind of obvious. So, so I kind of, um, we kind of have to be careful and not too, too quick to celebrate some of these successes because some of the successes merely mean that, um, that it's being successful again, judged by the standard that have been set for over like a hundred years. 
Big question. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we have um, other questions, but just to go back to uh, the, the the quarter that uh, right. commemorates uh, different uh, um, women in the United States. Uh, I've heard recently that it's actually sold out from the U.S. Mint. You can't purchase it anymore. Well, you can put yourself on the waiting list. So I had to get this um, basically uh, from eBay at the twice or three times the, the face value because they were, you know, the minute they're issued, they're snapped up by the coin dealers. I see. So you had to buy them from the coin dealers. And some of them are in circulation, actually. They managed to get into the market, but then they get dirty, right? You know, not collectible items. Well. Uh, just, just so you know, I actually do have one of those quarters, and I found it on the street. Okay. <laughs> it on the street. I well, that's what I'm saying. But these are <laughs> these are uncirculated ones. And, you know, if a collector, they have to be like directly from the mint. You know, still wrapped and. Uh, yeah. Uh, we have a question from Elisa Kraus. Uh, would like to hear more about the China relief efforts in the U.S. during the period of the attack by the Japanese. Uh, both anime Wong's role and broader support and the impact. Okay, well, thank you. So, when um, when the when Japan, you know, the uh, invaded China in 1937, anime Wong, as a Chinese, apparently became very patriotic, and this, of course, also came on the, in the wake of her China trip. Right, she became even more Chinese in a sense. So. <clears throat> She will kind of always say she pour you know her heart into China relief right away, and she will write articles kind of denouncing Japanese as well. And the same thing, especially for instance, when Pearl Harbor right um, uh, took place, when America finally turned like you know full attention uh, to the Pacific theater right, uh, and and eventually you know uh, went into war with Japan. Um, in those years, for instance, the Chinese community and the Japanese community, right? Japanese were uh, on the West Coast. They were sent to internment camps and everything. So, so we also had to talk about the kind of not just China relief, but in a sense of um, the, the inter-ethnic relationship in those years, right? And to be fair, uh, some of the Chinese actors in Hollywood, I mean, there was very few like bit pits, you know, bit roles. To begin with, when the Japanese actor was sent away to camps, uh, Chinese actors were able to pick up some of the roles. Okay, that's one. And and the other is that um, speaking of war relief, I'm just trying to describe general attitude. You know, the Chinese community, of course, was turning totally patriotic. But in those years, um, there was like a rice bowl parties for the more kind of the wealthier. This kind of fundraising, you know, rice bowl. They're called the rice bowl parties, and there's a for for elite kind of fundraising. That's one level. And anime Wong was traveling all over the country for those you know who will go to job. She will travel to Boston, to New York, and West Coast, East Coast, and everything to to raise money. And um, so, but the, the the Chinese community, like in Chinatown in San Francisco or in Los Angeles, um, their relationship to say. Um, fundraising organizations controlled mostly by ex-missionaries who were returned from China or in Asia. And they have sort of like a different agenda. So so in those years, there's, I mean, for people who study their history, you know, I, I can't go too deep into that. Um, 
but there are a lot of wrinkles and uh, things. Uh, on the surface, of course, is we're all raising money for China. And Animal is definitely, you know, pour her heart and soul into that. But 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 in between groups, for instance, sometimes there are frictions and because of different kind of agenda and everything. The, the example I gave when Madame Chiang Kai-shek eventually came, and that, of course, another kind of a public publicity, you know, a tour as well to, to, to rally support for, for China. And once again, you see, you know, she snubbed Anne Mei Wang uh, because she did not want her, want another beautiful Chinese woman to share her stage. And so, yes, hopefully I answer your question to some extent. Thank you. Uh, Judith Anderson's question is, it seems like Wang hung out in multiple known queer spaces. Was there indication that she might have identified as queer? Right. Well, so let me give you an example. Um, um, Daughter of Shanghai was made in 1938. Uh, this is a, a made exactly right after, you know, Japanese invasion. So it's another kind of war film to some extent. And Anime Wang partnered in this film, co-starred with um, uh, Philip Ong, and who's allegedly, you know, uh, it was a gay Korean-American actor. And uh, this is like one, only one film in which Anime Wang's role, character, ha has a happy ending. Because in all the other ones, you know, she she said, I die so many times. Her characters always die. I committed suicide or killed. And this is one film in which her character has a happy ending, romantic happy ending, because she's now partners with a an Asian star. But interesting thing is, um, the fact that in the film, uh, Philip An's character proposes to Anime Wang's character and also they were actually in real life, uh, high school friends, you know, in LA. And that sent Hollywood rumor mill into kind of overdrive, like as though these two, you know, Asian stars must be in romance, you know, romantic relationship. And interestingly, neither of them actually tried to dispel the rumor. You know, or if or more than that, actually, they added fuel into the rumor, say, you know, well, yeah, I, I'm very fond of him, him or her. But the thing is, there are many indications, like Anna um, um, Wang was, uh, if not in a romantic relationship, at least very intimate relationship with uh, Marlena Dietrich and, and other people as well. And the fact that she joined in early years, her entry, the reason I mentioned, uh, you know, Allah's garden, you know, her tutelage uh, uh, um, uh, under Allah Nazimova, who was known as a lesbian and a, and a, a bisexual person, um, is to emphasize that, you know, that throughout her career, um, this, you know, possibility is always there. And especially, you know, one of the photos I showed you is that pictures she'd taken by, uh, Carl Van Lecter. For instance, she was wearing a top hat, you know, cocktail and the makeup. And so her kind of bisexuality or queerness is often kind of, um, coded, uh, through clothing. Uh, acting and the friendship as well. So just back to this daughter of dragon, for instance, once again, um, the irony is that, um, that while Hollywood was speculating, oh, these two Asian, you know, um, they were living, of course, this is, we're talking about 1938. This is a pre-Stonewall era. Uh, if you are gay in Hollywood, 
you how much risk you are you know you're you're basically running uh if you're a big star they probably turn a blind eye if you still can make money for them but you are asian you know minority already it's already precarious and if you're gay as well so so there are these two kind of asian stars were very careful about you know what they can show or reveal or share so in some sense they are using each other as like as the you kind know, of proverbial beer you know to to fend off the the public eye so i hope i answered that question now in terms of uh, the creation of the book uh, how long did it take and what was the process of your research um, did oh. you did, was it purely um hitting the library or did you actually get to interview um family members of the you know the the people right. have already passed that knew her Right. So I wrote this book uh, in the middle of the pandemic. So as you see, archival research remains digital. And uh, but fortunately, nowadays, many things have been digitized. But also, I wrote this book in the pandemic in the sense that, um, like I mentioned earlier, this is a time when, you know, Chinese were attacked in Chinatown, uh, spat on because of COVID, you know, blamed uh, you know, they call that it's Kung flu, you know, COVID is Kung flu, you know, you know, the kind of racist taunts and everything. And, and so writing about, you know, how the cards are stacked against her all those years, despite her talent, her beauty and her tenacity was really kind of sobering in a sense. And that that really goes into my uh, writing, especially and, and the research. In terms of her roles uh, and the things that she can do on screen with her screen partners, um, the the Hayes codes the Hayes code really limited her ability to you know show off or do any sort of uh, interracial relationships on screen. Oh, right, yeah, right. Um, how did that affect her in terms of you know sort of the roles that she was able to get? Oh, tremendously. No, I mean, goes without saying. This really the linchpin, kind of you know, that's um, really haunted her career. I call that like kind of virtual form of uh, food binding, right? Uh, because kissing, uh, interracial kissing, when it's banned, uh, I mean, kissing, as one film scholar said, is really the soul of 20th century kind of love. Uh, it's not about the kiss. It's you know the 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 intensity, is the imagery that really is the soul of love. And without that. You know, you cannot have romance film. And for that, of course, and that's why she's got, you know, snubbed all, over and over again. So her career was definitely uh, hampered by that, you know, that one uh, kind of anti-miscegenation uh, uh, rule, right? Why are we so fascinated with her? <laughs> After so many years, we're still, you know, discussing her life. Um, I, I believe, you know, there's this with a couple of documentaries about her. I, I think there's supposed to be a feature film that someone wants to make about her as well. Uh, so my answer is like, why not? <laughs> because all those years, who else could represent uh, Asian American experience better uh, in the first half of the 20th century or those decades, really? She was the only kind of genuine Chinese face on the screen. No matter how what kind of role she plays, she was the face and no one else was able to to you know, get into that space. Uh, this how limited it was. So as you know, when like Lucy Liu um, had her Hollywood, you know, uh, Walk of Fame star, you know, her star installed, 
uh, once again in the middle of pandemic, actually, uh, 2019, uh, exactly 100 years after Anime One's debut uh, in Red Lantern. So if you watch that, uh, that, that recording, it's on YouTube, like Lucy Liu's you know, uh, ceremony, she actually took the time to thank um, Anime One um, because their stars actually together, placed together now uh, in Vine Street, uh, Hollywood Boulevard, Vine Street intersection. And uh, she, Lucy Liu thanked Anime One for uh, blazing the trail for somebody like her, the, the future Asia, you know, Asian, uh, Asian American artists. And Lucy Liu did this kind of, sort of like a dragon lady kind of hand gesture. She said, well, Anime One and I, uh, can just have a little Chinatown right here, <laughs> which is, of course, a snub, uh, a dig at Hollywood, really, because they were assigned this kind of corner within a spitting distance, of course, from Chinese theater. But in these hundred years, as you see, who represented, you know, who was there in what way represented by these films, right? And anyone's definitely is really the heart and soul of that story. Thank you. Uh, Faith Lin asked, uh, what do you think Anime Wong's greatest impact on society was? Um, great question. So her presence, I think, that the fact that she can appear on this quarter um, is her imagery, right? She's not just a film icon, but really um, a, a fashion icon as well. But here's the important thing. So the reason I write this, you know, wrote this book, we are all drawn toward these kind of icons, you know, the the glamour. She's of course very glamorous, and that that's like a, the I would think a kind of superficial impact, and that's the first impact is you know her glamour, her beauty, her tenacity. But we have to remember if America kind of fell in love with Anime One because of her looks, her glamour, her beauty that romance became also a taboo because of her looks. And that's really the story I want to tell, is what, what un lies underneath the glamour and that success or failure, you know, her story. Uh, so that's, you know, I want to show how, what, what pains she went through and all that. Oh, thank you. And uh, yeah, one of our, our attendees did mention uh, there's Gemma Chan is planning to do a feature film based on Anime Wong. And then also uh, Milestone Films is re-releasing a Blu-ray version of Piccadilly, uh, utilizing restoration overseen by the British Film Institute. So please do check that out. I want to thank Dr. Huang for a wonderful uh, talk. Uh, you can purchase Daughter of the Dragon for $30 from Amazon. Uh, the link is in the chat, also available on uh, Dr. Huang's talk webpage. Uh, with that, uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend, uh, your Friday evening, and remember to be an upstander, ABC, a fellow person in need. And thank you very much, Dr. Huang, well, once again you. for a wonderful talk. And I wish you much, uh, you know, a great book tour for the rest of the semester. Thank you.